What about the consensus as far as what this system and, and what people are putting into it? It gives us real time uh, analytics to understand the exact precise amount of people on the planet and ev- like everything on everything. If if we were to really maximize this, well, that's yeah, that's the. At the maximization, that's sort of the libertarian fantasy of everything being marketplaces. Um, the The market is a super intelligence. It's it's a lot of human brains working together to to get this information that's better than any individual can have. How can you create a transformation in others if there's no transformation in in yourself? Join your host, Greg Favaza. As your voice on the hard truths of leadership, your transformation station, connecting clarity, connecting clarity to the cutting edge of leadership. As millennials, we can establish change, not only ourselves, but through organizational change, bringing transparency that goes beyond the organization and reflects back into ourselves, extracting, extracting actionable advice and alternative perspectives. That will take you outside of yourself. All right, Noah Healy, welcome back to your transformation station. Yes. (laughs) Feels like I've always been here. (laughs) I still don't understand what this system is because when I, when I think of something, I need to almost envision a physical essence in order to really pick apart this description that I'm thinking of. Yes. And that's, that's one of the the basic challenges um, that that's going on. This is, is a lot like an arch. Um, The, you know, architecturally arches didn't exist for most of human history. Uh, and then sort of somebody figured out that if you just had this keystone, you could sort of lean two columns against each other and they would hold each other up. Um, trade is an arch type behavior, having a marketplace as a common point for buyers and sellers to come together that the sort of buyers and sellers can hold each other up in that trade structure. What I have found is a three-way arch, um, which allows separating the buyer and seller concerns in two pieces, the one of price negotiation and the second of physical exchange of goods. Um, And the the keystone is a more complicated object in order to balance the the needs and and products available from these three sides uh, and so that's that's my basic challenge is sort of describing the structure of this much better keystone that's a really interesting way of putting that with the arch that now like looking at the the graph that makes a lot more sense when I try to envision it that way. But before we get back into that, can you just give our audience a little bit about yourself, a little more uh, 
about your history, your education and understanding that led to this creation of this, this system that you've created? Yeah, sure. Um, so I've been fascinated by math basically my entire life. Um, I started at the local college, uh, University of Virginia, in my junior year of high school because the various pilots of, of advanced math systems actually meant that I'd finished high school mathematics in my sophomore year. And, and then I sort of transitioned almost, I almost transferred from high school to college, uh, continued, continued my education there, uh, and wound up in the engineering school and didn't really have a specific life plan in mind. Um, but liked math, knew I was really good at it and figured engineering was, was sort of a, a good fit for that talent structure. Um, bounced myself into the nuclear engineering program, uh, basically just because the, one of the deans that I knew and knew was a good teacher was teaching an introductory class. Um, the department itself had been dissolved the year before I became a full-time student, mm -hmm. but it was still around and some of the classes existed. And the nuclear engineering is the most comprehensive branch of engineering that exists. Um, it's got mechanical, electrical, uh, civil, um, computer coding for, for various pieces. And then another whole bit of radiation and, and so on. So there's this sort of mass smorgasbord of things that you you get to learn about. And so that was kind of what I was doing there. Uh, and then I got out and, and got, got working in dot coms and then other tech startups around town. And sure. Okay. Got into computers. Nice. So it's like an interdisciplinary, God, I always fucking struggle with this word, an interdisciplinary approach in all aspects of mathematics. Um, yeah, yeah. And that's, that's a, that's a thing I've always, I guess, had a facility for and also an attraction towards, um, one of the things as you learn about the history of mathematics, particularly you learn is how much cross pollination effect and how much different things are when you look at them the right way, really exactly the same thing. So, uh, going back to like Descartes and the analytic plane where Euclidean geometry and algebra are shown to be essentially the same subject just by using graph paper. Um, and, and those sorts of insights where you can learn something and then apply it effectively everywhere is to me, uh, and not just me, this is sort of the philosophy of, of, science is is what math is really great for um you know the fact that how you cut up you know how you cut up say food to serve it out like a lasagna and how you can divide up land is exactly the same set of techniques and tools mm -hmm. even though land and lasagna are are basically unrelated things. Um, 
is is really important and and would then also apply in many other contexts. And so when I learn about things, I try to dive into them to that mathematical level mm-hmm. and both to understand them more thoroughly, but also to sort of pick up whatever gems might be there that I could then. Let's get back to this. So with your CDM and how it works, the simplest description that you've defined that I'm looking at your little map here online, it's down to uh, four individuals, which is the producers, the consumers, market and forecasters. And there's a start to, let's see, close of tr- uh, trading window and then uh, trade resolution. Uh, that would be the market actions less than one second. Now, if we were to go into that, the first part you were going into was starting at the market and that would be a published price of information where the consumers can get uh, a baseline of what is uh, a reasonable price. And then the market, which is the published price information, which is sent to the forecasters. And let me finish the initial part when I said, the market price where the consumers can see it, that is published to towards the producers. Is that correct? Uh, it's, it's published. So if you see, there's actually sort of three arrows coming out of that part of the map. Ah, so yes, yes. it's actually that information is published to everybody. Everybody gets to see that effectively at the same time because it's stable over a long enough time frame that, you know, if you get it one microsecond before I get it, it's still the same when I see it. And it's mm-hmm. going to stay that way for minutes or more usually hours or days. Um, so okay. if I, you know, get up late, I can still see the same deal that's that's on and, and decide how I feel about it. Beautiful. So we were talking about it a little bit earlier. We were touching on it with the market and sending out this price, who is the deciding factor that this is the price it should be? No one person can guarantee being the deciding factor. This is an integration of every forecast that is willing to put their money where their mouth is. So how would that happen? So. That happens within the market space. There has to be an interface where people can basically plot out what they think they know about the future. Um, so this could be a a full curve of you know every day what the price of corn is going to be for the next ten years. If you're insane, um, this might be somebody that thinks that they know what happens on Valentine's Day and is just February 14th thing it, you know, for mm-hmm. a couple of years, this could be somebody who, you know, helps out members of the Fed and thinks that they know what inflation is going to do. And so, you know, is, is moving three or six months or, or something around the, these can be essentially anybody that, that is willing to invest behind their beliefs about the future. And what my system does is it uses this sequence of integral equations to integrate all of those different beliefs into sort of the the single 
not quite median, but but approximately uh, uh, congenial belief of so, of the entire group. That's it's really interesting, but it makes me concerned because I'm I'm thinking about this. What if I like? Is there any standard guidelines that will that will keep people in check when they are doing this? And if there's not, would there be? Because I feel like if I wanted so, to manipulate the system, I could. So you could attempt to lie to the system, yes. And and you can attempt to lie to the systems that presently exist as well. Um, in both cases, the penalty is similar. It's very costly to lie to the system because the system as a whole has more information than you do and is, is looking for the truth. And so it punishes people that are wrong, whether they're lying or or not. It's also completely independently of, of how this thing goes on, it's illegal to intentionally lie to the system. Now, right now, that's that's something that can't really be prosecuted because it's it's fairly difficult to to detect. However, within CDM, um, a lie about, you know, three years from now isn't that big a deal. The, the world has a long time to sort of figure out that you're lying and, and go in and correct the record. Um, the material lies would be both large and short term within a CDM. And those are both extremely expensive and if successful, extremely detectable. And so um, intentionally lying to a CDM is not only economically ruinous, but also physically dangerous because it's, it's against the law and, and the proof would be trivially easy because you essentially have to say, I think this thing that's obviously false mm -hmm. and I'm going to spend billions of dollars to make you believe me and, and then have it be demonstrated to be obviously false, at which point your billions of dollars help ameliorate the costs that you imposed on everybody yes. um, and you go to jail. Okay. Let, let me just uh, explain this. The CDM, that's a coordinated discovery market, and that's based off uh, core disk with your, with your uh, business here. Now, it, you did touch on the, the very last statement there with people that were to invest money to try to, as much as they can, to get people to believe in them, even though it is a lie. But, okay, now there is a, um, there's some backlash that would happen and he would go to jail. Now, how do we, how do we make this actually a solid system and not just actually fundamental? Well, so that's one of the things that's interesting is that the, the solidity comes from the participation. Uh, so this requires uh, at least, 50 people to be using it to, to work. And this isn't particularly unique. Uh, the existing markets require this competitive nature of buyers and sellers yes. to come on in order to regulate them. When they lose that liquidity, um, their, their, their marketplace falls apart. Uh, and in fact, there was an incident around six or seven years ago uh, where 
the beef market had become so thin that a single traded uh, contract actually shifted the entire marketplace by something like 10% or, or now I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was an incredibly large number. So, you know, imagine if somebody sold one share of Amazon and Amazon went from being a $2 trillion company to a $1.8 trillion company as a result of that single share selling that happened to the beef market. Um, so is there a, in, how do we, I'm trying to look at the integrity behind that because that's why I was trying to frame earlier and I just didn't, I couldn't get it out. So between that and the stock market and cryptocurrency, like how do we maintain that structure where we can do that? Well, so marketplaces and this again, Adam Smith, uh, uh, rest integrity on self-interest. And, and there are both theoretical and empirical economic modeling from game theory and history that demonstrate that relying on individual self-interest is pretty rock solid. Um, People cannot always know or act in their own immediate interests, Mm -hmm. but by and large, on average, we do a pretty decent job of of wanting what we want and doing what what we do in accordance with those desires. And so within a CDM, yes, within a CDM, a person who's telling the truth about what they believe and acting in their own best interests based on the information that's presented to them will have the highest rates of return that are possible within the CDM for them. And those rates of return will be significantly higher, whether you're a producer, a consumer, or a forecaster, than what you can achieve within the existing marketplace. Now, let me ask you this. Is there a second system in line that almost challenges the consumer's choice? Because I know we're, I mean, fucking our emails are collecting a shit ton of stuff on us as we speak. So I'm just, I'm looking at it as, okay, if this individual is deciding to to go down this route, but the data says he is not, would it challenge him or would it? Would it actually uh, let the producers or the forecasters alter something within the market? So in the commodity space uh, right now, it's, it's very much about free choice. In my system, to, to, if anything, the choices are even freer um, because existing commodity markets, in order to get price discovery out of their trades, essentially force people to lock in trades into the future. And I, I'm not even doing that. Um, however, uh, what you're talking about is what I call the, the retailization of the economy. Uh, and that's something that I think is very clearly dangerous 
at the political and social level. Um, it's it's obviously highly remunerative uh, for the people doing it, which is why they're doing it. Um, you know, Google and Facebook and and even Amazon would much rather, uh, you know, ad buys be how uh, all material on Earth is is transacted. Um, but the so commodities are a low margin business uh, with a lot of competition, which any business school will tell you don't get into. But the compensation for doing that is that basically no marketing budget. If you grow X, then all you have to do is hump it down to the market for X and, and they'll just buy it from you. Um, you don't have to find, you know, who likes these little gugaws or whatever. Whereas if you are in the retail space and you make a new kind of potholder, you gotta you gotta fight for market share in the in the you know cutthroat world of potholders. Um, mm-hmm. So the the marketing people who have sort of eaten the business world think that that's great that everybody should have you know a multi billion dollar marketing budget to fight for market share within within the whatever. But our our lives are based on the ubiquitous availability of high quality raw materials. And if the marketing people manage to change things like the oil, steel, wheat, rice, beef, Mm -hmm. pork markets into the, you know, toy, drapes, mm-hmm. those markets, um, the the loss of economic efficiency would be probably sufficient to end the political viability of states in their current form. Um, Interesting. Okay. So they're trying to do that. It's incredibly difficult and they are mostly failing. We should celebrate those failures because if they succeed, it's going to be extremely dangerous. Um, uh, but they are trying to do that. Okay. I'm working on a different system of trying to make the, the sort of high quality raw materials system just function better. Uh, okay. And, we'll pause and that. Then, We're going to pause that. I want to make okay. sure we get the, this system down first and, Keep people. Okay. Yeah. You have a lot of great information. I love that. All right. So now from the start phase, we already explained that. Now this is uh, the close of the trading window. We have a market that's sent to the forecasters. The forecasters will commit to future price updates. Then uh, consumers will commit to the purchase and then producers offer to sell. So then from there, that all intersects and everybody meets at the market. Right. So people have to update the market with their own desires. Um, this, this isn't some sort of predicting human behavior thing. This is a aggregating and managing human behavior thing, uh, which is a subtle difference. 
So the commitments, starting with the forecasters, as you did, uh, are basically what I'm doing about the future. What the existing system does about the future is it actually commits to trades in the future. I have this commitment to price information about the future. Uh, Wait, so if it doesn't commit or if it doesn't predict human behavior, to me, it sounds like it does. Like with like, does it collect psychographic data? So it doesn't predict human behavior. Humans and other external systems predict human behavior. What it does is manages a reward package for those external persons or systems to filter out the best of their work and put it together in a way that that can be universally accessed. Like operant conditioning? um, So that's, that's interesting. It's actually something called evolutionary game theory. Uh, And what evolutionary game theory basically says is that Um, because operant conditioning is a real thing Mm -hmm. in an environment where individuals can sort of take on this role-based game behavior, the, the entire game will equilibrate at the Nash equilibrium, the, the point of game optimization because it's in the interest of the individuals to sort of do what they do. And the ones that whose actions aren't contributing towards Nash equilibria behavior, uh, operant conditioning will kick in for those individuals and essentially train them either to leave or change their behavior in ways that cause the Nash equilibrium to become dominant. Let me ask you this. This is, that's a really good, uh, thing you brought up with uh contextualization do you feel or have you noticed in the the population that there's a possibility that we might be lacking an understanding in contextualization and we are not grasping the concept of these these uh core principles within mathematics, within English, within what our school system was teaching us because the way that they were trying to make us adapt to learn this system was flawed and how they were trying to teach us. So my, my institutional issues are a little more fundamental than that. I, I think that and this will monologue for just just a couple of phrases, but computers are a bigger deal than steam engines. Steam engines ate the world. Like the it's it's incredibly difficult to point to a presently existing institution that that exists in the form that it did before steam engines did. And sort of if you don't believe me, imagine a debate between Elizabeth I and Elizabeth II on whether or not there had actually always been an England. <laughs> Um, cause I don't think they'd be on the same side. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, so 
computer technology, the communication technology that it's enabled, the other sorts of technologies enabled, the sorts of technologies that it could enable, to me, suggest that the the assumptions that are built into our institutions, um, whether that's cultural or political or economic or, or anything, have been falsified. And attempting to move forward on a false premise is just a waste of time. Um, Oh, all right. We, I got, I got to stop you because this is where we, I, this is the best parts of all the podcasts is when we go into organizational culture and we look at that understanding on how organizational leadership is making an effective culture today or is attempting to or lacking the effective culture. And that's what they're trying to achieve. Now, I feel like they are lacking the fundamental decision-making that follows transparency, but also uh, balance transparency. And I would say focused training where they understand that employees, everybody within an organization understands exactly what their role is, but actually can grasp it from a in-depth concept like mathematics where if they just taught their employees like that the system will flow naturally that so i would i would say that's a true statement i would say that that's so challenging that it's not a realistic goal um the the thing that coordination discovery markets are based on is a a thing within game theory that I appear to have discovered that I call negotiation games, which is that coordination games, which are a well-known idea in game theory, can be modified with essentially an extra player that can be a computer program because the extra player is, is wholly determinative. And the game plus that extra player um, will change its its long term evolutionary structure. Um, mm, okay, and that's essentially how my sort of cordis company, the, the marketplaces that I'm talking about, that's how they function. the The market operator is essentially writing the code and playing the game of that extra thing to cause the marketplaces to function as marketplaces but do so less expensively. Um, these negotiation games are potentially available in, in many, many contexts, but the, the downside of this negotiation game approach is that the difficulty of solving the underlying problem increases hyper-exponentially as the number of roles being considered increases. Um, so if you sort of wanted an idealized, perfect organization on the scale of, you know, a transnational, some, some organization that has like a hundred thousand or even a million employees, 
mm-hmm. all of whom understand their roles and are pulling in a direction that's organizationally valuable. Um, the the mathematical problem that I have identified that solution of which would allow you to build the system that would do that thing uh, would have two to the half trillion uh, 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 factors, if you will. Um, so two to yes. the tenth is about a thousand. So uh, that now would be a number with about 50 trillion zeros. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that's totally impractical. Like that, that, we don't know what that is. We, we, I, I do not see a world in which we would ever solve problems like that. Um, and so, what do you see as far with your system that you've came up with? Is there a way that we could look at? let's say an organization, the hierarchy looking a a vertical level, if we were to put in uh, dependent, independent variables where we look at the behavior, uh, the perceptions, the influences of management and the changes within uh, the market, could we somehow predict how the company will run based off our understanding? The the win, and the win is enormous because of this hyper-exponential nature, is in defining useful roles within the company. Um, and so creating uh, a, a system. So like within coordinated discovery markets, we've been talking about this sort of four-player game that, mm-hmm. that, that is the marketplace. But obviously... Markets are actually being used by thousands to millions of users. It's just mm-hmm. that there's four roles within the game that they're playing. Um, if you have this million-person company that has a problem that has, you know, 50 trillion zeros worth of difficulty in just figuring out how to solve the problem, that's insane. If you could reduce the scope of of what you're doing down to 10 roles that the million people are involved in, possibly at different levels, um, then those 10 roles problem would still be insanely hard. It would be uh, on the order of 30, 40, uh, uh, what, that that's quintillion, quadrillion, sorry, 40-ish quadrillion. uh, in terms of difficulty, which is still mind-boggling, but you might get lucky. Um, <laughs> well, sometimes sometimes the problems actually have easy answers. Uh, I've got some stories about that, but um, but in contrast to you know of like forty quadrillion versus a number that has fifty trillion zeros, you've you've made an enormous strides. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you can do that, if you could define sort of 10 roles within your, your system that we're interacting and then provide something like that, or if you could just define certain valuable things to learn or know about yourself, 
So there's a very simple negotiation games you can build to just extract single points of information. So if scheduling or budgeting uh, projections would be valuable to your company, which would be valuable to most companies, um, much simpler games could be generated to allow your employees to collectively and anonymously tell you the truth. Uh, something that you might be interested in. Yes. Okay. Now don't go any further here. All right. Yes. This is a uh, game theory and it, we are playing off this, uh, the, the CDM and that is the, uh, the coordinated discovery markets. And what we're looking at is it's a formula, a malleable formula where we are going to try to integrate uh, the context and what we're going to go into. And what I'm curious about is if I, let's say if I were to have everybody in my company fill out a 24 hour time wheel of how they would spend their day and what that time would look like. And if I could look at everybody's time wheel and see exactly, all right, this is how their time's being spent. I can almost pull out the most like important factors that are actually causing uh, say an issue in, am I hearing myself echo? No. Okay. Causing an issue within the system when, cause I, I just, I really feel like with organizations, they're, they're always, they like, they're not utilizing their resources properly. Well, that's, that gets to, something called the theory of the firm, which basically says that the reason organizations exist um, is because it would be so expensive to generate markets that replicated their, their notions that <clears throat> in spite of the fact that the organization isn't actually making decisions all that well, um, it's if you factor in the cost of getting better information, it's making decisions well enough. Um, uh, yes. And so, so that, that's what gets into things, but yes, the, the difference between sort of great teams, um, things like, uh, the Walt Disney era animation or Pixar's ability to essentially just become a hit factory for, you know, in Pixar's case, decades now, um, or NASA, uh, once, once the Kennedys came in and they, they were about to get their funding hamstringed, um, you know, that there are, or, or Los Alamos and, and the gathering of, you know, everyone who won the Nobel Prize in physics basically to, to, to build the atomic bomb. Um, <laughs> there are, there are collections of extraordinary people and there are collections of people that, that sort of punch above their weight class. And there are the combinations of those two things together. And the, the capacities of those, of those events are miraculous. Um, it's, 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 it's amazing what can happen. And so it's easy to say, oh, I would only like to be involved in things like that. Um, and that, choice is a hard one to make. Um, there's a, there's a story from, um, I, I think it's Bell Labs, uh, and there's a guy named Hilbert, who's not the 
the famous David Hilbert of the 19th century mathematics, who was who was there. And the lunchroom tended to be very clicky. You're monologuing. I'm sorry, but let me get the story out because this is good. He would he would go around and he would talk to to newcomers, and he had he had three questions. It was what what is your area? Second question, what's the most exciting and important work being done in your area? Uh, third question, what's your work? And very frequently, people weren't doing the most exciting and important work in their area. You know, like, like they were afraid or mm-hmm. didn't have the resources or, or whatever. And and it was bas- it's a challenge. It's like, well, if you know what the right thing to do is, and you know you're not doing it, and it's put to you that boldly, why aren't you doing the right thing? Um, and that's, that's, a, that's sort of a personal challenge of, of your you know, mental toughness or spirit or whatever. Um, and that's, for leaders, that's, that's, the, that's the challenge that confronts them if they wish to face it, which nobody's going to force you. You're a leader. Well put on the end right there. That, that's really good. I, yeah, from what I've understood in my research in trying to finish up this remaining year in organizational leadership, my bachelor's, it's coming down to commitment and transparency and just the decision making within the system and applying a deep context and teaching your employees, actually giving them real knowledge and understanding of concepts that will take them it, it, that they can carry forward into their next line of work and not just at a meaningless job. Cause I feel like what you're describing earlier, that's employee disengagement because they don't really, it's, it's all surface. I mean, it's like basic conversations. Okay. You just do this and this and you're fine and nobody will notice you. You just do that. But well, you again, notice. It's going all the way back to sort of invisible hand. So first off, not everybody, in fact, wants to be noticed. But invisible hand, the point Adam Smith's making and the point of, of other things is that people are being driven by their own self-interest. And so yes. in, a, in a meaningless job, um, the self-interest is the paycheck. You know, I'm, I'm here because I want food and shelter. I can collect a paycheck and, and require food and shelter. Or an experience um, to get into a promotion that is required. Or, yeah, or, or something, you know, whatever it is, it can be a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so then they are going to be disengaged. Like the, the, the job is irrelevant to what they're receiving from it. Um, but making jobs relevant is is itself a difficult task. Yes. And I feel like it comes down on the culture. I mean, if we're looking at fucking uh with Facebook and how that shit came out and understanding that there wasn't any transparency. I mean, I feel like if they were to just told us, "Hey, we are controlling and manipulating the system here." That well, would you be okay yeah. with it? <laughs> and and they're they're opaque like from the jump. Consider how many highly successful 
uh, you know, litigation events occurred during the the financialization of Facebook, including my favorite one of all time, that the guy with the cocktail napkin. Um, as as Facebook was going public, uh, this guy showed up with a signed contract from from Mark Zuckerberg um, that. Zuckerberg had gotten this guy to give him, I think it was $50,000 uh, in order to build Facebook um, in exchange for a very small stake in, in the resulting company, but which would become a controlling stake if Mark couldn't deliver by like January or something. And, mm-hmm. and Facebook launched in March. And I can't remember the exact dates, but so basically that's what happened you know, approximately that, that Mark missed the thing. So this guy had a signed contract from Mark Zuckerberg that said that he owned Facebook and the company was just about to go public. And what, whatever happened in litigation, uh, he, he went away and he went away (laughs) with a very large amount of cash money. Um, and, yeah. Zuckerberg essentially must have lied to every single person he worked with forever. Yes. Um, because, He's developed that fucking popularity. Right, because, because uh, you know, nobody would have invested in a company that was actually owned by some, some guy who's, you know, got a cocktail napkin with, mm-hmm. with his signature on it. Now let's look back at here with your system. I got one more question and then we'll go into it. You, you mentioned a lot of great people in history that made an impact in society. Now with this game theory system, what if we were to able put almost take in the context of their, of of their thought process and a decision-making that they would make and input it into the system. I think it'll take a long fucking time, but if you had enough manpower to do it, do you think we could come to an understanding where society should be at versus where we are actually at? I think the single greatest miss in terms of our potential is underutilization of brain power um the the human the human brain almost nobody's too dumb to see uh (laughs) the amount of if, if you think seeing is an unsophisticated process talk to some computer vision people sometime um because it is not uh and and so there is an extraordinary amount of processing power available, not just in the chips and silicon, but also between our ears. And we are using, you know, in round figures, none of it. Um, now, coming up with sophisticated network coordination systems is in fact incredibly difficult. And there's also a lot of moral and ethical and philosophical issues with <laughs> so-called super intelligences. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
that is all for us to navigate. And, and none of the systems that we have are concerned with navigating them, which is, I think, one of the reasons why those systems don't have much of a future. Uh, but Interesting. Okay. But the degree to which we can create systems which allow people to improve their pursue their goals, I think is the best way to put it. Mm-hmm. By improving the well-being of the system is the degree to which yes. we will be able to move forward the potential of societies, companies, communities. I I like that. I really, I really like that. Now let's go back into this here. When we initially started off, we started we have the producers, the consumers, the market, and the forecasters. Now, this is the the four uh, aspects that make up this 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 arch that you were elaborating on the last episode. Now, with these four uh, variables, I want to say it, it starts at the market, the published priced information, the published it, it's sent out to the forecaster, to the consumer, to the producer, and then right back to the market with the offer to sell, commit to purchase, and to commit to the future. Now, at that very point, it almost ricochets right back out with the, let's see, we have the send the contract that that gets sent out and uh, aggregate information and collect investments. Now, what? Tell me a little bit about that part. Okay, so supply and demand um, hopefully match each other. Uh, it's it's sort of a disaster if people want to buy things and they can't, or people want to sell things and and they can't. Mm-hmm. So, what the system does is it batches up all supply and demand uh, in sort of one go and then matches them all out against each other. And that's how it can maintain a stable price across all the trades that it it engages in. So if you trade, you'll trade at the price that that's published. Um, And you will trade as long as you're either uh, sort of below average or, or on the side, which has, matches for all of its demand, which if supply and demand match, everybody on all sides will be at that level. Um, And we use this bottom-up settlement strategy where uh, essentially um, we try to fill the first item of everybody's order and then the second item of everybody's order and so on. And so what that does is it minimizes the marginal cost of misses. Um, So it's, it's not the struggling farm family that can't make the one and only trade that means that their kids can't, you know, have socks to go to school. It's the, you know, factory farm that owns half of Kansas that loses 1% of their trade today and can then sell it tomorrow, um, which isn't ideal, but isn't as costly as, as the hedges that they currently have to engage in. So they're still better off. Um, then the second part of that is the integration that gets into how we take 
different people's beliefs about what the future is going to look like and integrate those into a common belief. And that comes down to measuring how much information is in each one of their stated prices um, and doing a computation to determine um, what the what the effective median of those beliefs are. It's slightly different than that, but that's the simplest way to think about it. Um, and consequently, how much each of those information segments contributes to that output value of the, the sort of common belief of common beliefs. So uh, would the... Is the let's say the news like I I didn't want to bring it up, but could the the like something that was just published on the news can or brought live could that impact that system? Yes, yes. Um, so that that happens right now, and it actually goes the other way around. You know, CNBC is an entire news network that is essentially dedicated to describing what the markets are doing. Mm-hmm. Marketplaces are a lot of different things, but one of the ways to think about them is that they are the world's most reliable and valuable news source. Um, The the Austrian economists uh, did the work on this, and they basically point out that in a functioning price discovery system, price is 100% of the information that you require to operate your business decisions. So interesting. I like that. Something like the price of oil, you know, the, the conflict in Ukraine, the availability of, of oil transportation and production all around the world has an enormous number of, of incoming factors. Um, but basically, just by looking at the price of gas, you can decide how much to drive your car. Yes. You don't, you don't okay. need to comprehend the entire physical universe and how it's interacting with itself. Um, the price alone is enough to, to give you that information. And the price is two-sided. The price alone is also enough to give Exxon, Mobil, and Shell, and so on, enough information to determine how they should put together their strategy for transportation, extraction, refinement, and so on. So. Price is this sort of two-sided piece of information that enables the invisible hand to function. Um, Beautiful. Well, well put. I like that right there. That was, that made it so like comprehensible right there, the way you put it. So is this like a, a representation of the stock market or a creation so of this, a crypto something? It just it seems so too this familiar. is this is an alternate way to build something like a stock market. Okay. Uh, once again, <laughs> going back to history, the price discovery mechanism that we use right now is traceable to the city states of northern Italy, which launched the Renaissance. And the reason they were able to do that is because they suddenly got very rich. And the reason that happened was their price discovery mechanism, the one we use right now was so much better than the one being used everywhere else that they became the hub of Mediterranean trade. Um, 
and they did this okay. without armies. Um, the, the, the existing hub of Mediterranean trade was located in Constantinople, where the Eastern Roman Empire was still a thing at that point. And they had radically better strategic position, radically better like location. Um, they had armies. They had vastly deeper culture and history. Um, but their economy didn't work as well. And so people who wanted the best prices and the best planning would hub out of places like Venice and Genoa. And when, when people's self-interest is aligned in a particular way, that, that starts tending to happen. Um, this is an algorithmic advance on that system. This is, a, this is a different way to achieve that same goal that costs less money, less time, and less effort. Um, okay. Now, what is your main concern with digital currency space, including this marketplace? My primary concern with the digital currency space right now is the algorithms don't have a long-term time plan. Uh, Bitcoin, the grand Mac daddy of everything, is dependent on its hashing algorithm and doesn't have a reasonable way to shift hashing algorithms in a sort of retroactive fashion. Well, hashing algorithms break. Uh, this one isn't likely to break anytime soon, but we definitely don't have a theoretical justification for believing it will never break. Uh, and and sort of they all tend to break eventually. Uh, so if the hashing algorithm that underlines Bitcoin, if somebody figures out what's broken about it, then then that's that's the ballgame. Um, and unless your chain is multi-hash resident at all times, which is very expensive, which is why nobody does it, uh, then then you're vulnerable to that. And what is that? Know, what is what multi-hash? Well, so imagine if you will multiple parallel blockchains. Okay. That were all operating on completely different tech stacks so that a flaw that existed in one tech stack could take out one chain, but then the rest of the chains would, would remain alive. So let me pause that. Let me try to relate it to our listeners. I'm looking at it as a uh, data warehouses that are located all across the United States. If we were to have a natural disaster or a powder outage that took out maybe two or three states worth, that would be fucking horrible. But then all internet information metadata would get pushed over to different servers in different parts of the states to allow the individuals to bring the power back up and, and get those data warehouses back. And that. Yes. Is, yes. Yeah. 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 So. It's, it's a, a foundational of reliability. The really only way to acquire reliability is through redundancy. And redundancy is expensive. Beautiful. That's, that's what we needed to hear. Thank you. I love that. Okay, so now we're on the trade resolution. Now, this is going into... So, yes. Yeah, I was just talking about how trade resolution 
or actually, no, I think keep going because I, I was talking about contract sending. Yes, trade resolution is slightly different. Uh, make make a delivery, confirm delivery, and make a uh, what is this payment based off commission? And uh, right, we we because of the send of the contract. Yeah, yeah, we covered that. Well, sort of. So the notion is that the marketplace collects commissions on the trades that it's managing. And then from that commission, because it has measured how much useful information that individual forecasters provided that integrated outcome, it can actually precisely cut up the pie of both the investment pool and this incoming commission pool. And so you get rewarded as a forecaster based on the, the fraction of your useful information as a percentage of the total useful information that got inputted into the system. So to go back to last time, when you were talking about what if I just lied to the system, your lie is purely useless information. And so the system can essentially measure that out as of zero value, providing you with 0% of the outcome. Um, And, Uh, and the, the useful people who either are correcting your lie uh, essentially will get paid for, um, by your own investment for correcting the record. I like that. It, does that also bring up the, say, if we were to look at the lower population, lower class, did that, does that give them more of a fighting chance to actually get a return on their investment? Um, yeah. So the way this functions is that the ROI is based on uh, a parameter that the operator sets and the amount of the amount of your forecast that is valuable um, to to the final outcome and so everyone capable of the same level of accuracy can get the same ROI within the system, which means that since the producers and consumers themselves have some degree of knowledge about the system, mm-hmm. it is possible for them to not make huge investments, but make small investments around their beliefs, have those beliefs aggregate together, which definitionally has all of the information required because what the producers and the consumers collectively think the price is, is what the price actually is. Um, and so they can invest in this positive sum, high rate of return system um, at a very low level and still get the price information, which is what the the marketplace cares about. Uh, And the only way to sort of short circuit that would be for a sophisticated investor to be able to anticipate uh, before they could know what they were going to know. They would have to sort of know ahead of time and use up that useful information reservoir in the system. But if that were to occur, then the practical outcome would be marketplaces that were more accurate and more stable 
which means that their primary businesses now function better than they used to function um, at a lower cost. So it's for for sort of the the little guy in this high competition environment. It's it's pure win, um, which is exactly why it's how it's designed to work because the value of the commodity marketplace is its allowance of little guys to survive in low margin environments as a reliability mechanism so that when you go down to the lumber mill, they're never out. Uh, Because if the foundational products are ever missing, well, like in the 20th century, we saw this happen repeatedly in China and Eastern Europe, Soviet Union, and so on. What about it's, recently it's, with, uh, let's say, well, the housing? And then, yes, yes. The supply chain disasters as well. Yes. Um, it's, it's tremendously damaging to an economy not to be able to find its, mm-hmm. its, its base things. Yes. Now, what, like, what are the, imp- let's say, like a rise in currency or with uh, the housing development, there was just not enough. What does what the impacts of that have on this kind of system? So this, again, is a news system. So as, as these large social or biological forces move around, um, this, this thing's job is just to report what the practical reality of that is. If the, if the practical reality is that the swiftly increasing global population means that the price of food is going to keep going up. Then that's what, then that's what it means. Well, wouldn't it project the price though? Couldn't it project? Yes. Yes. That it it will, it it will tell everybody that that's true and let people know that they should maybe consider getting into farming instead of getting into, (laughs) you know, marketing because the price of food is going to keep going up. If on the other hand, the increased population, actually means that technical resources are going to be redeployed in ways that make the price of food go down in the future, um, perhaps stabilizing global population at some level, uh, then it will determine and project that and let people know that maybe there isn't a guaranteed free ride in farming for the next century, and maybe you should just go into marketing instead. So I don't know what the future holds. but this system allows a, a, a market to explain to itself humanity's best ability to figure out what the future will hold for itself. So I like that. And there's, I feel like there's a lot more other, other things here that we are not getting into. What about the consensus as far as what this system and, and what people are putting into it? It gives us real time uh, analytics to understand the exact precise amount of people on the planet and ev- like everything on everything. If, if we were to really maximize this. Well, that's yeah, that's the at the maximization, that's sort of the libertarian fantasy of everything being marketplaces. Um, the The limitation of markets and and these kinds of the market is a super intelligence. It's it's a lot of human brains working together to to get this information that's better than any individual can have. 
the limitation of markets, and this is very explicit in the case of my coordinate discovery markets, is that they operate on systems of voluntary cooperation. And voluntary cooperation is not the only way that things work. Um, you know, some people are not so nice. And so wars Voluntold. Happen. Right. Um, and and even, even beyond that, uh, some people are just sort of beyond the pale. Like, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer really was a cannibal serial killer. It's not just, <laughs> you know, it's not just a fictional character. There's people that are actually evil <laughs> and, and horrible and, and you don't want to have around. Mm-hmm. And so there, there's limitations to the degree to which everything can just be everybody getting along because some people don't want to play. Um, and so, so markets are great. We should have better ones. Um, they are not the universal solution to human evil. Uh, they are, they're a tool for creating accurate and valuable news sources. Um, and I have an approach that allows the generation of low-cost, accurate news sources for industries and companies and people that would find that something interesting and useful. But, you know, some some people are running con- companies and they're kind of dictatorial asses and they, <laughs> they want to kind of show up and and tell people, you know, push people around and tell them what to do. And the people who work in those companies want to collect a paycheck and go home and play with their kids. And would we all be better off if there was like some sort of dynamic leader that was, that was inspiring people to come in and, and, and yeah, sure. We would, but you know, that guy doesn't exist in that industry. And, and so we, we've got what we've got. Mm -hmm. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, what other fintech news do you have that's relevant to your products today? Um, supply chain is is increasingly getting uh, looked at by fintech, and um, that's that's something that that has a lot of potential overlap with uh, improvements in in marketplaces. Existing marketplaces are are centralization points and that simplification is important, but they're also very much based in specific locales. So one of the issues with that is that something like a third of the volume on the CME group um, is actually sourced outside the United States. And those people actually cannot physically trade on the markets. So places in like Central Asia although with the latest sanctions, maybe not so much anymore, um, essentially need to use the United States marketplaces in order to price their goods for trading with, you know, the next, the next town over um, because they need the market information. But in order to acquire market information, where you're not actually able to use that marketplace directly. You have to sort of buy into the hedge and then you have to buy back out of the hedge. And so there's sort of a, a double dip cost that's associated with doing that. I feel like we 
gave everybody the rundown on CMD and how exactly that works. Cause the final uh, stage to this is the trade resolution, right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, CDM coordinated discovery markets, not coordinated market discovery. Oh shit. <laughs> that, that might be interesting as well. Um, what companies are you working with now and what companies have reached out to you? If you don't mind sharing some of that. Well, some of it's under NDA. Um, so mm -hmm. I can't talk sure. about too many specifics. Um, uh, there is a company doing fundraising that's actually attempting to build a NFT based marketplace that, uh, that is using the NFTs as proxies for other uh, uh, financial instruments, which will allow essentially cross-border investment to occur without the regulatory overhead that normally be associated with that. Wow, and yes. their intention is to use CDM technology uh, in the governance of their, their market system. So they're sort of doing at a higher level of having the system, a, a marketplace in commissioning costs and so on of, of their marketplace um, in order to sort of tune it to be a more sophisticated and successful gotcha. uh, okay. uh, market. People that are really interested in this, this system you develop, maybe they are kind of in they're actually in the same pool and they're trying to develop their own system. Uh, what, what are some recommendations that you would make to, to people that are engineering something very fascinating or leadership personnel that want to step up in their game? Like, what, what would you tell them? Uh, well, feel free to reach out to me. Um, I'm happy to talk about these things. Uh, I'm also, you know, consulting services, if, if that's the kind of thing that you're up to. Uh, but if, if you want some sort of reading on your own to do, uh, cannot remember the name right off the top of my head, but the Rand Corporation actually put together this basically children's book level uh, a version of game theory that's actually fairly comprehensive um, and, and really helps. Um, uh, other other things uh, that are that are pretty accessible um, are are things like Parkinson's law or the Peter principle. Um, I've I've mentioned Adam Smith several times. Eighteenth century literature is a little weird to modernize, but um, it's he's, he's actually I mean you know he, it, it it's really well known for a reason. It's it's actually pretty readable. Um, you mm -hmm. go to the actual you know back to the actual texts. So. To actually read oh. that kind of literature, you got to have that uh, 18th century mindset. So would you actually look at, I don't know, diaries or personal journals to get an idea and then kind of read? Um, no, read Treasure Island. Ah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Treasure Island. It's a great read. Um, get yourself get yourself into the in, into the set with <laughs> one of the finest writers in, in human history. Um, so, yeah, I, there's a lot of smart people in the world. There's a lot of people that are smarter than you in the world. Most of the people who have ever lived are dead. 
Um, so most of the smart people who have ever lived are also dead. Uh, and some of them wrote some stuff down. Uh, so like that's that. an enormous resource. Uh, dig in. I like that. Well, I do appreciate you coming on to your transformation station now, Noah. So I really do. Uh, thank you for your time. Thank you. All righty. You take care. You've been listening to your transformation station, your voice on the hard truths of leadership. We hope you've enjoyed the show. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information. Make sure to like, rate, and review the show. Remember, your transformation station is on all major platforms, including Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, TikTok, and YouTube. And visit the website till next time.